Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Dennis Lehane. First off, I'm uh, like mortified I'm late. So I'm so sorry. I, I'm not. I'm the anti-Axel Rose. I don't like to be late for my own appearances. I just got really stuck in this terrible traffic. Yeah, so I know it's L.A. And so I should have. I should have made made extra time, but I, I made a mistake. So my apologies. Uh, I'm. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, uh, I'm going to. There's a young gentleman in the office, uh, the audience. So I'm, I just realized I only have one thing I can read. So uh, I'm going to read uh, just from the opening um, a little bit, and then we'll go to Q and A, which is which is always more fun. Um, and so that's that. So there's no there should be no setup if you read from the opening of a novel. Uh, so there's nothing you really need to know that I won't tell you in the opening. So there you go. So we'll see. All right. All right. Um, the only thing you need to know is this is set in December of 1942. Before the small war broke them apart, they all gathered to support the big war. It had been a year since Pearl Harbor, and they came together in the Versailles Ballroom of the Palace Hotel on Bayshore Drive in Tampa, Florida, to raise money for troops stationed in the European theater. It was a catered affair, black tie, and the evening was mild and dry. Six months later, on a muggy evening in early May, one of the crime beat reporters for the Tampa Tribune would come across photographs from the event. He'd be struck by how many of the people who'd been in the local news lately for either killing or being killed had attended the fundraiser that night. He thought there was a story in it. His editor disagreed. But look, the reporter said, look, that's Dion Bartolo standing at the bar with Rico Giacomo. And over here, I'm pretty sure that little guy in the hat is Meyer Lansky himself. Here, you see that guy, talk, that guy there talking to the pregnant woman? He ended up in the morgue back in March. And there, that's the mayor and his wife talking to Joe Coughlin. Joe Coughlin again in this one, shaking hands with the Negro gangster, Montooth Dix. This guy smoking a cigarette by the Damon White, he's dead. So's that guy. The guy out on the dance floor in the white dinner jacket, he's crippled. Boss, the reporter said, they were all together that night. The editor mentioned that Tampa was a small town disguised as a medium-sized city. People crossed paths all the time. It was a fundraiser for the war, war effort. They drew everyone who was anyone. He pointed out to his young, excitable reporter that plenty of other people who attended that night, two famous singers, one baseball player, three voice actors from the city's most popular radio soap operas, the president of First Florida Bank, the CEO of Gramercy Pewter, and P. Edison Half, the publisher of this very newspaper, were all quite unconnected to the bloodshed that had erupted back in March and stained the city's good name. The reporter protested a bit longer, but found the editor intractable on the subject, and so went back to researching rumors of German spies infiltrating the Port Tampa waterfront. A month later, he was drafted into the Army. The pictures remained in the photo morgue of the Tampa Tribune long after anyone who was in them had passed from the earth. The reporter who would die two years later on the beach at Anzio had no way of knowing that the editor, who would outlive him by 30 years before succumbing to heart disease, was under orders to end the paper's coverage of anything to do with the Bartolo crime family, Joseph Coughlin, or the mayor of Tampa, a fine young man from a fine Tampa family. The city, the editor was told, had already been tarnished aplenty. 
The participants that night back in December had all been engaged, as far as they understood it, in a wholly innocent union of people who supported the soldiers overseas. Joseph Coughlin, the businessman, had organized the event because so many of his former employees had enlisted or been drafted. Vincent Imbruglia, who had two brothers in the fight, one in the Pacific and one somewhere in Europe, no one could confirm where, ran the raffle. The grand prize was two front row tickets to a Sinatra concert at the Paramount in New York at the end of the month, and first class carriage on the Tama Miami Champion. Everyone brought rafts of tickets, even though most assumed the wheel was rigged so the mayor's wife, a huge Sinatra fan, would win. The boss of bosses, Dion Bartolo, showed off the kind of dance moves that had won him prizes in his adolescence, and in the process, he gave the mothers and daughters of some of Tampa's most respectable families stories to tell their grandchildren. Rico DiGiacomo, the brightest star in the Tampa underworld, showed up with his brother Freddie and their beloved mother, and his dangerous glamour was outdone only by the arrival of Montooth Dix, an exceptionally tall Negro made taller by the top hat that matched his tuxedo. Most members of the Tampa elite had never seen a Negro pass through a party without a serving tray on his palm. But Montooth Dix moved through the crowd of white people like he expected them to serve him. The party was just respectable enough to be attended without regret and just dangerous enough to be worth remarking on for the rest of the season. Joe Coughlin had a gift for bringing the beacons of the city into contact with her demons and making it all seem like a lark. It helped that Coughlin himself, once rumored to have been a gangster and quite a powerful one, had clearly evolved past the street. He was one of the biggest charity supporters in all of West Central Florida, a friend in numerous hospitals, soup kitchens, libraries, and shelters. And if other rumors were true, that he hadn't fully left his criminal past behind, well, one couldn't fault a man for a bit of loyalty to those he'd known on the way up. Certainly, if some of the assembled tycoons, factory owners, and builders wished to settle any labor unrest or unclog their supply routes, they knew who to call. Joe Coughlin was the bridge in this town between what was proclaimed in public and how it was achieved in private. When he threw a party, he came just to see who showed up. Joe himself conferred upon the festivities no further significance than that. When a man threw a party where the upper crust mingled with street thugs and judges chatted with capos as if they'd never met before, either in court or in a back room, when the Sacred Heart pastor showed up and blessed the room before imbibing with the same gusto as everyone else, when Vanessa Belgrave, the pretty but icy wife of the mayor, raised a glass of thanks in Joe's direction, and a Negro as fearsome as Montooth Dix could regale a group of stuffy old white men with tales of exploits in the Great War, and not a cross word or drunken faux pas was witnessed by anyone. That party was not only a success, it was quite possibly the success of the season. The only sign of trouble occurred after Joe stepped out on the back lawn to get some air and saw the little boy. He moved in and out of the darkness at the far edge of the back lawn. He zigzagged back and forth as if he were playing tag with other boys, but there were no other boys. Judging by his height and build, he was about six or seven years old. He spread his arms wide and made the sound of a propeller and then of a plane engine. He made wings of his arms and careened along the fringe of the tree line, shouting, Varum, Varum. Joe couldn't put his finger on what was odd about the kid, other than him being a child alone at an adult party, until he realized his clothes were a good ten years out of date. More like twenty, actually. The kid was wearing knickerbockers, Joe was pretty sure. One of those oversized golf caps boys wore back when Joe himself had been a boy. The kid was too far away for Joe to get a good look at his face, but he had the odd sensation that even if he were closer, it wouldn't have made a difference. Even from this far away, he could tell the boy's face was irrevocably indistinct. He walked off the flagstone patio and crossed the lawn, 
The boy kept making airplane sounds and ran into the darkness beyond the lawn, vanishing into a stand of trees. Joe heard him buzzing somewhere back in all that darkness. Joe was halfway across the lawn when someone off to his right whispered, Psst, Mr. Coughlin, sir, Joe? Joe slipped a hand a few inches from the derringer nestled at the small of his back, not his normal gun of choice, but one he'd found suitable for black tie events. It's me. Bobo Fuschetti came out from behind the great banyan tree along the side of the lawn. Joe dropped his hand back in front of himself. Bobo, how's the kid? I'm okay, Joe, you? Tip top. Joe looked out at the tree line, saw only darkness. He couldn't hear the kid back in there anymore. He said to Bobo, who brought a kid? What? The kid. Joe pointed. The one who was acting like an airplane. Bobo stared at him. You didn't see a kid over there? Again, Joe pointed. Bobo shook his head. Bobo, a guy so small, no one had much trouble believing he'd been a jockey, took off his hat and held it in his hands. You hear about that safe got opened to that rock-crushing place in Lutz? Joe shook his head, even though he knew Bobo was talking about the safe that had been robbed of $6,000 at Bay Bombs Aggregate. Oops. A subsidiary of one of the family's transport companies. Thank you. Me and my partner had no idea it was owned by Vincent Ambrulia. Bobo waved his arms like an umpire calling a guy safe at home. None. Joe knew the feeling. His entire path in life had been determined when he and Dion Bartolo, barely out of diapers, unknowingly robbed a gangster's casino. So then no big deal. Joe lit a cigarette, offered the pack to the little safe cracker. Give the money back. We tried. Bobo took a cigarette and a light from Joe, nodded his thanks. My, my partner, you know Phil? Phil Cantor filled the bill because of the size of his nose. Joe nodded. Phil went to Vincent, told him about our mistake, said we had the money and we were going to bring it right back. You know what Vincent did? Joe shook his head, though he had an idea. He chucked Phil into traffic, right on Lafayette, middle of the day. Phil bounced off the grill of a Chevy, like the one ball off a hard break, hips shattered, knees all destroyed, jaws wired shut. Vincent tells him as he's lying in the middle of Lafayette, you owe us double. You got one week and spits on him. What kind of animal spits on a man? Any man, Joe, I'm asking. Never mind one lying on the street with parts of them all broken. Joe shook his head and then held out his hands. What can I do? Bobo handed him a paper bag. It's all there. The original amount or the double Vincent asked for? Bobo fidgeted, looking around at the trees before he looked back at Joe. You can talk to these people. You're not some animal. You can tell them we made a mistake. Now my partner's in the hospital for, I don't know, a month? That seems a high price. Could you float that? Joe smoked for a bit. If I get you out of this, Bobo grabbed Joe's hand and kissed it, most of his lips landing on Joe's watch. If Joe took his hand back, what'll you do for me? You name it. Joe looked at the bag. Every dollar's in here? Every single one. Joe took a drag and then loosed a slow exhale. He kept waiting for the kid to return, or at least the sound of him, but it was clear those trees were empty. He looked at Bobo and said, All right. All right, Jesus, all right. Joe nodded, but nothing's for free, though. I know, I know it. Thank you, thank you. If I ever ask you for anything, he stepped in close, anything, you hop right to. Are we clear? As a bell, Joe, as a bell. And if you Welsh on me, I won't, I won't. I will have a curse put on you. And on any curse, which doctor I know in Havana never misses. Bobo, like a lot of guys who'd grown up around racetracks, was highly superstitious. He showed Joe his palms. You won't have to worry about that. I'm not, Joe said, I'm not talking about some garden variety hex, kind you get from an Italian grandmother and her mustache in New Jersey. You do not have to worry about me. I will honor my debt. I'm talking about a Cuba by way of Hispaniola curse. Haunt your descendants. I promise. He looked at Joe with a fresh coat of sweat on his forehead and eyelids. May God strike me dead. 
Oh, we wouldn't want that, Bobo. Joe patted his face. Then you wouldn't be able to pay me back. Vincent Ambrulia was set to get bumped up to captain, even though he didn't know it yet, and even though Joe didn't think it was a great idea. But times were tough. Strong earners were getting rare, some of their best off in the war, so Vincent was getting his promotion next month. Until then, though, he still worked for Enrico Rico de Giacomo, which meant the money that had been stolen from the stone crushing company was really Rico's. Joe found Rico at the bar, slid him the money, and explained the situation. Rico sipped his drink and frowned when Joe told him what had happened to poor Phil the Bill. Toss him in front of a car? Indeed. Joe took a sip of his own drink. There's just no style to a move like that. I agree. I mean, have a little class. No argument. Rico gave it some thought as he brought them another round. Seems to me the punishments already fit the crime and then some. You tell Bobo he's off the hook, but not to show his face in any of our bars for a little while. Let everyone cool down. Broke his jaw, huh? Joe nodded. That's what the man said. It's too bad it wasn't his nose. Maybe he could have, I don't know, restructured it. Stopped looking like God got drunk and put Phil's elbow where his nose was supposed to go. His voice trailed off as he looked around the room. This is some party, boss. Joe told Rico, I ain't your boss anymore. I ain't anyone's. Rico acknowledged that with a flick of his eyebrow. Looked around the room some more. It's still a hell of a bash, sir. Salud. Joe looked out at the dance floor at all the swells, dancing with all the former devs, everyone polished to a shine, and he saw the kid again, or thought he did, the boy appearing between the swirl of gowns and ruffled hoop dresses. The boy's face was turned away, the back of his head sporting a small, a small cowlick, no hat on him anymore, but still wearing the knickerbocker pants. And then he wasn't there anymore. Joe placed his drink aside and vowed not to have another one for the rest of the evening. In retrospect, he would look back on it as the last party, the final free ride before everything slipped toward that heartless march. But at the time, it was just a great party. Thanks. Hello. Questions? Anyone? Somebody's always got to be first. Yes, sir. Um, so this is your third book in this series. And yeah. They've gotten, and I, I don't mean this negative, but they've all gotten progressively shorter. Yes. Is there a reason behind that? Is there a story structure behind that? Or just your life has gotten tighter? Particularly given the drop was your shortest novel. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, well, the drop was a, an anomaly. The drop was, was kind of meant to be a short novel. But um, uh, these books, it started with A Given Day, which was kind of gargantuan. Uh, and then Live by Night, which is shorter because it's only one story. It's just Joe's story. I mean, The Given Day has, I think, I think it has... I'm guessing here, but I think it has somewhere around seven major points of view in it. Um, then with World Gone By, it just became this, um, originally I'd started for something much bigger. I thought the book was going to cover a much larger period of time. And then it just sometimes, a, yeah, I feel you have to listen to what the book is telling you. And the book just kept telling me it wanted to be one story, very compressed. It wanted to be a story about a father and a son, and a story about a man who is watching the world shift. And in, in major ways. He was watching his world shift. So once I realized it was just one storyline, I stepped. I just stuck to that storyline. Um, my books tend to get bigger when they're when the when the trails branch. But if I, if it's just a straight trail, I tend to be a, a pretty economical writer. I guess that makes sense. So but there was no plan. There's never a plan. Trust me. Next. Anyone? Yes, sir. How, how's 
How is LA going to affect my writing? None. It's not going to affect me at all. I'm never going to write about LA. So there you go. Uh, it's going to help, I think, because um, I am. Um, I think good writing comes sometimes from you know Hemingway said he wrote good about Michigan when he was in Paris. He wrote good about Paris when he was in Key West. I think sometimes when you're homesick, you visualize better, and. I'm a tiny bit homesick, so I think that as I write about Boston, I'll, uh, I will... We can get you a big refrigerator. You give me a big refrigerator? Oh, so it'd feel like it's cold? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, um, no, it's not the cold, it's the dirt, and it's the attitude, and it's, um, the accents, and it's people saying, ah, in every third word or so. And you don't know this about Bostonians. It's how you can tell one in a crowd. You can be in Europe. You can pick one out. It's not that they just drop their R's. They use the A-H in, as an interjection in everything. So they say, so uh, I'm going to go to the uh, store and uh, pick up uh, some stuff. Uh, so you want to uh, go with me? That's what you can tell. I miss that. I don't hear that here. Everybody just says, so I'm going to go to the store and pick up some things. Would you like to join me? It's very smooth. So, yeah. So there's little things I'll miss. And... Uh, and bigger things, and you know, I'll I'll just keep writing about it. Yes, sir. The North Shore. Oh, Beverly, Beverly, as we say. How are you? Beverly. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's I I did not know that myself. Also, I thought it was Weymouth. Well, all right then. There you go. See, we didn't just give you. Affleck and Damon, we gave you Beverly Hills. There you go. See? Did something. So, and my dad used to have a restaurant in Fields Corner. Oh, wow. That's my hood. Yeah. Wow, what's the name of the restaurant? It's called Ch- uh, China Capital. China Capital. In Phil- okay. Woolworths and a bar. It was between the Woolworths and the bar. In the bar. Okay. The Woolworths went and was kind of dying right about when I was a little kid. But, yeah. Wow. That's cool. Oh, that's great. Me too. Me too. That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah. How do I get my start in writing? I just did it. I just always did it. And then uh, when I was 20, I, I kind of dropped out of two colleges because I wasn't good at anything else. And so I had that that great. Um, it, it's, for me, it was great. I think it's really great if in your life you can be good at one thing, not five things, it, or and not none. Like that would suck too. You know what I mean? You got to kind of. But if you're good at one thing, it it really narrows all your choices. So you don't try to do anything else. So all my friends were like becoming stockbrokers and going to law school and they were doing all these things. And I just couldn't do anything else. I'd tried. I'd failed. And then I said, so I'm just going to be a writer no matter what it costs me. And that's what I'm going to do. And so when I was 20, I, I, I made a decision. I made this leap. And I went to college for it in, in Florida. And um, the best thing that I had going for me was no uh, just no safety. There was no safety net. There was no. I couldn't fall back on anything. So the dilettante factor was removed. So a lot of my friends, they were doing it, but they were also kind of they were hedging their bets. They were they were preparing to teach or they were preparing to uh, write criticism or whatever. I, I I could. It was fiction or bust for me. So I I had a much different focus than everybody else. It's the one thing that everybody to this day kind of remarks on when I was in college and grad school is I had this scary level of focus. I was going to be I was going to learn how to do this if it killed me. And so, you know, yeah, thanks. Sir? Yeah, will you be writing the other gangster novels? Will I be writing other gangster novels in the future? I have no plans to. I'm leaving the past. I'm, I've done, I've been there, I've been there a long time now. I started writing The Given Day in uh, 2003. It's now 2015. 
um, I'd really like to be back in the world of cell phones and, um, you know, just like normal stuff, TV, you know, I think I, I just, I'm going to move back into the present for a little while. Then I'll see where I'm at. But again, I never have a plan. I really don't. So I, I heard recently that about another writer who had his next five books planned out. And I was just kind of like, no, oh, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't even have my next sentence planned out. You know, so, um, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna. I know my next book is set in the present. I can't tell you anything more about it, but I know it's set in the present day. Yeah, I worked on Boardwalk and I worked on The Wire. I've worked on two shows for HBO. So, um, and that was both fun. Yeah, it's a good time. I like writing for TV. It's good. Yes, sir. You know, I was reading this essay on Hemingway a while back and was talking about how he felt like he was in competition with every other writer that was going at that point. Right. He was really, like, kind of trying to be the best writer. He, you know, he could be better than everybody else. Right. And I just wondered, you know, talked about certain writers that he really felt like were the guys that he had to watch out for. And I wondered if there were writers, you know, right now that you feel like like they make you sort of up your game or do you feel like you're a Oh, are there other writers who, who make me feel like, oh, yeah, absolutely, um, all the time. All the time. Um, I think that there's there's a group of us who have always been in a kind of a, a healthy, friendly competition. Uh, Pelicanos, me, Conley. Um, you know, I, I always feel like I, I always feel whenever Richard Price produces anything, I always feel like okay, I got to see now. I got now. I got to know where the bar just got raised to. You know that kind of feeling. Uh, Daniel Woodrell makes me feel that way. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Um, oh, you know who I, I, I just, every single time I dip into him, I go, oh, wow, is, um, just at a, at a, at a, just a straight up prose level is, um, is Alan first, oh, yeah. uh, just blows me away every time. I just, I, I have no idea how he manages to get in that clean and stay that clean and write that beautifully and evocatively. And yet it's really clean. It's Hemingway-esque in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm reading his new one now called, um, uh, uh, Midnight in Europe. Midnight in Europe? Midnight in Europe, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of... Um, if you're any... If you take this seriously at all, I think you, you have this weird uh, uh, split in your personality. You, you, um, on one hand, you've you got to be extremely cocky and have a very big ego and, and want to do it. And then on the other hand, you have to believe that everything you do sucks. And it's the sadomasochism of the job. And, and you just go, oh, you know, I missed there. It's not as good as that. People have said, you know, oh, aren't you proud of this and proud of that? And I'm, like, reasonably proud of two of my books. Reasonably. Okay, you know, in context. Everything else, I'm just kind of like, I go like that. Because all I can see are the flaws. And, uh, and that's a really horrible uh, way to live. But it works for me. I mean, it's just kind of like it's... And everybody I know who's... The, the writers who I just want to leave the room are the writers who say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very good at what I do. They tend to not be, you know? They tend to just be competent. They tend to be very competent. I think that's a different thing. I don't read for competency. I read for... I know this sounds really pretentious, but it's true. I read for art. I read to be transported. I read to be taken to some place else I wasn't ready to go. And... Reader, then there's another type of writing, which is uh, it delivers a certain type of competency, a certain type of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Those those writers sometimes I run into, and they they tend to think they're they're, they're very high on themselves. 
and they're, they're very secure in what they do. And I'm, like James Elroy. Elroy is a different level. Elroy is, no, I think Elroy is constantly setting a bar for himself that he's, he's chasing Tolstoy. Yeah. And I would say that when he's, his public persona is very much a kind of a bluster. Yeah, exactly. But you, when you read his work and you see what he's doing, that's not somebody who's resting on his laurels. That's not, this is somebody who's going some, and, and somebody who is that way is somebody who is at the, at the baseline not satisfied. And, and that's it. You, you can't be satisfied. If you're any good at this, you can't be satisfied. And that means that if you're any good at this, you think you're not good at it. Does that make yeah. some really sick sense? Yes. Okay. There's somebody over here i got to repeat because you can't see her, but she's asking a question. Why do you like working why do I like working for TV? The social aspect is awesome. I have been wor- I have been writing for 20 years in a room by myself. Um, I when I worked on Boardwalk, all of a sudden every day I would get up, I would go into work. I would literally go into work. I would have to show my little badge to like to like get in, and then I would go inside, and then I would go up and I would put stuff in my office, and then I would go to the water cooler and I would make coffee and I would talk to people, and I thought. I, I'm, I'm going to create a show. I don't care if it sucks or not, just so I can hang out with people. Like, I'm, I'm getting into this. So that's, that's one of the reasons I'm really into TV. Uh, the other reason is because I think it's, it's, it's very uh, seductive for novelists. When we worked on The Wire, we, we realized that it fits a, a 10 to 12 episode TV season, which is what's on premium cable, really fits the rhythms of a novel. It's very similar to writing a novel. Uh, it's 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 just feels around the same length. Twenty four episodes for network TV. That's that's to me is insane. A six is too small. A movie is too much like a short story. But that ten to twelve episode sweet spot to me is really attractive. It's super attractive, and uh, and also because in premium TV right now they're letting the lunatics run the asylum. And until we screw it up, and we haven't done it yet. They're letting. They've given us the keys to the kingdom, and and I'm. I want to take advantage of that. So the smart people get to run the show. You're, they're not being used out. People, it's really creative, is what you're saying. Yeah, people who are really creative. I mean, they're letting people like you know David Simon, and there's a lot of Davids involved actually. <laughs> David Benioff and DB Weiss and Vince Gilligan, and and you know they're letting a lot of pe- people do incredibly dark creative work that you would never have seen on TV 20 years ago. It's, you know, it's David Chase broke it all wide open. David Chase changed the game, you know, with with the Sopranos. So, and HBO, I think, changed the game. So, and now everybody's in it. You know, every time you turn around, there's a great TV show coming down the pike. So, um, yeah. Yes, miss? If you're so focused on your flaws or on what you could have done differently, how do you move forward? What's your revision? Oh, okay. So there's the thing. That's a great question. If you're so focused on your flaws, how do you move forward? Here's another aspect of your personality that you need if you're going to be successful in the arts. You need to be able to leave it all right behind you immediately. I heard a great story about, I was fascinated by Manny Ramirez when he played for the Red Sox. And he's actually, if you read my book, The Given Day, and you read my portrayal of Babe Ruth, I was really, I don't know anything about Babe Ruth. I was channeling Manny Ramirez. I just said, my Babe Ruth is going to be Manny Ramirez. He's going to be really dumb. He's going to be unbelievably talented. And and people, the celebrity culture is going to start to care what he says, which to me is just idiotic. But that's that's there we go. So um, Manny Ramirez was considered a great hitter for for a number of reasons. But they always said his greatest talent was he never remembered the last at bat. So what would happen is he'd be at a crucial moment. 
it's game three of the World Series, and it, all bases are loaded, and he can win the game, and he whiffs. The next time he gets up to bat, he doesn't remember that. It doesn't even occur to him. He's thinking about chicken. He's thinking about whatever, you know, pizza. He's thinking about the next ball coming at him. And so you need that if you're going to be any good in the arts, I think. You can't be hung up on what was your last lousy line, your last lousy performance, your whatever. You can't, you've got to take your insecurities, stare them in the face, and throw them in a barrel. And then move on and keep moving on because otherwise it's paralysis. And, and then you never get anywhere. And I truly think that the, the last step for a lot of novelists that they never get through, I've seen this with novelists a lot, is what I call fear management. And I think it's the final step, is you get all the, you've got everything. Your talent is now pretty much, you, you know what you're doing. Your work ethic's good. You have something to say. You know how to tell the story. Why are you not finishing your novel? I know a lot of people who wrote 400 of a 500-page novel, and the last 100 pages are still just sitting there for years. And I think it's because the moment you finish, it gets real. The moment you finish, it's no longer this wonderful fantasy that you go to sleep with every night. I can be a writer. You turn it in, and people can suddenly say, you suck. You're awful. Who told you you can do this? Which is the great fear we live with. I think the fear I always live with is I call it the emperor's new clothes. Somebody's going to stand up in a crowd someday. Maybe you. And I'm going to be in the middle of a reading and they're going to go, you're full of shit. And everybody's going to go, he is. He is. I felt that too. I feel that when I read his books. And then that's it. I'm over. I'm done. I'm toast. I'm yesterday. I'm a footnote. I think that's what all of us feel. Because this is a crazy thing to think you can actually say something to people and that they should pay you for it. You know? Yeah. So. Yes, miss? I want to know if you're ever going to give us the Bubba Rogowski book. Am I ever going to give you a Bubba Rogowski book? No. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad you love Bubba. Uh, I, I love Bubba, too. Uh, it's deranged that you love Bubba, and it says something disturbing about you, but uh, and me. But, uh, no, he's great, but the problem is, is he's an absolutely, he's, a fl- he's what's known as a fl- flat character, and he exists beautifully as a flat character, but flat characters can't drive a book. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I don't, I, I vaguely remember that moment, but <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hope to bring him back in another book at some point, but right now, but never a point of view. Can I respectfully disagree? <laughs> that I, as, look, I, I thank you very much. I, maybe, maybe. What about fan fiction? You, you have my, you have my. Oh, you could do it. Okay, <laughs> sir. Um, from Greater Boston area. So, okay. Um, I wanted to ask you. I find the the dialogue. For most of your, your books, they're just fluid. You know, for me anyway, it transports you to a place where you feel like you're there. Right. Watching it. You're, you're a part of the conversation. And a lot of cases, I don't get that with other authors. And I'm just curious as to, you know, how do you, how do you get to that point? How do you get to the point where you do dialogue that, or, or yeah, I mean, fluid? Between like right. the, the sarcasm that, I mean, it's so ingrained in. I, that's part of. I, I would argue part of it though is that if you came from where I came from and you didn't pick up an ear, you weren't listening. 
because people talk extremely vividly where I grew up, and they they talk. There's a certain attitude that. Um, I got a lot of anecdotes with this, but well, I'll give you one example. I was in Europe once, and I was there for a month, and I flew back into Boston, and it was during mad cow disease, and and I flew back into Boston, and I I was just like standing in line at customs, and uh, just feeling like a little dislocated, a little kind of where am I get you know okay right I'm in Logan but I'm not quite home yet, and then there was a woman in front of me, and she walked up in the and the guy at customs, clear Boston guy, he said, um, uh, anything to declare? She said, no. And he said, uh, were you near any uh, mad cow? Were you near any beef, ma'am? And uh, were you on any, fa- no, he said, were you on any farms? And she said, um, no, uh, but I flew over one. <laughs> and the guy goes, Fitzy, Fitzy, uh, can you come over here for a minute? Calls this other guy over. He goes, ah, this nice young lady, she, uh, she flew over a farm. Fitzy's like, oh, I don't know. How high were you? <laughs> and this went on for like three minutes. And I just remember getting like tears in my eyes. I was like, I'm home, you know. Um, so I guess when you come from a place where people, you know, where people talk like that or uh, another one I just love is my, my, my wife and I were living in Charlestown and i um, she, she had just seen uh, the town. Charleston's a part of Boston that, for a hundred years, was the place where uh, nobody went. Uh, it was it was considered. Uh, my father used to say, "That's where the crazy Irish live." You know, don't go over there. And we just seen the movie The Town, and I told my wife that that Mr. Gruber was inspired by it. And um, <laughs> we we she said to me one day, she said, "Honey, I don't, I don't know. This is like I know you t- say it was like this rough place, and the town says it was, but all I see are a bunch of yuppies just like us, you know, as BMWs and just like us." And I was like, "Just wait." And a couple of days later, we took our daughter out. She was a year old, and we took her to this playground in Charlestown. Where, as we walked in from like a mile out, I saw this this woman, and she was clearly a townie, and she was like had a uh, like a hair that had like that no color from like way too many dye jobs. And she had like a Benson and Hedges deluxe ultralight the size of a Scud missile hanging out of her mouth. And she had three kids, clearly from three different dads. And uh, we walked in there, and our daughter's just learning to walk, so she's kind of teetering. And this uh, one of this woman's kids is buzzing around her in one of those plastic cars. So we're talking to the woman, and she's like, so use the Tonys, what brings you here? And, and like my wife's looking at me like she didn't even understand what this woman's saying. And, uh, and then all of a sudden she reaches out and she grabs the kid's car, and she says, uh, hey, hey, you're scaring that little girl. You're scaring that little girl. You do it one more time, I swear to God, I'm taking you back to the playground of the friggin' projects. We'll see how you like it. You get shot. <laughs> and we're like, uh, so we're going to go. <laughs> and she's like, God bless. Um, so, I mean, that's just, that's just, I live for that. I live for those, you know, that, the moment I hear that, the moment I hear that type of phrasing, the moment I hear that, that attitude, yeah, how do you not write good dialogue like that? So the people who write bad dialogue, maybe they just write bad dialogue, and then in some cases, they just didn't grow up in a place where people talked cool. You know? I mean, seriously, you know? So. From Arlington. All right, so there you go. You know, almost it's Cambridge. Almost. Almost East Cambridge, yeah, okay. I'm okay with it not being All right. <laughs> uh, finals? Yes, sir. You say you decided <clears throat> to be a writer. 
Yeah, twenty. I'm wondering who were there. Was there one or like maybe a couple of particular authors that really inspired you to? Oh yeah. Do this. I want to do this. No. Oh, I don't know if it was I can do this. It was this sort of thing of you read and then you start to write. It's the, you know, I don't think you feel like I can do this. You just feel like I want to do this. Or some version of it. Yeah. Um, I had read uh, Richard Price when I was 14. That was a big game changer for me. Uh, this book, The Wanderers, that made me understand that it was the first time I read a book in which I recognized almost everybody in it. I was like, those are the type of people I know. As opposed to all these other books I was reading where it was kind of like Lords and Ladies and Gatsby. and You know, I love Gatsby, but these are not people I was relating to. Then suddenly I read this book and I went, I get everybody in this book. I understand this. I understand this world. That then leads you down this daisy chain. It's usually, it, this happens with, with um, this happens, you, you hear a lot, but this happens with records. This with, you, you then say, okay, what influenced that? And you find out, I found out that Price was influenced by Last Exit to Brooklyn. So that led me to Last Exit to Brooklyn. Then ultimately, I started to just read urban novelists. So then I read James T. Farrell, and then I, and then, but that was a little dated for me. And then I floated out of that, and then I discovered William Kennedy. Uh, I think I discovered William Kennedy and Elmore Leonard right around the same time. So William Kennedy's Albany novels and Elmore Leonard's Detroit novels, to me, were this was like, this was it for me. This, the, you know, they they were the. And then P, and I discovered Pete Dexter. Um, so all of those were were the books that made me go. This is what I want to do. I want to write about. I want to write about the world I, as I, the world I grew up in, as I understand it. And that's what I did. So, yeah. Can I ask you one? Yeah, sure. So, a lot of writers think they can write, but it feels like telling a story is really the important part. Do you see any difference between writing and telling a story? Do I see a difference between writing and telling a story? Yes, but I think that the, telling the story is the baseline. That you need to be able to do that, and, and a lot of times that gets lost. And it's a weird thing. We all start because we want to tell stories. And then you go into the actual writing of it, and you'll be writing for pages and realize you haven't even started a story yet. I don't know what it is. I don't know what happens. There's some weird transom that isn't crossed when you sit and you take the pen to the paper. And it's that you're not telling the story. A lot of times you're... you're you're, you're, you're obsessing over how you're telling the story, I guess. Um, but at the same time, that has to come into play, too. The problem with, uh, the problem with right, the, the misconception about writing is that because everybody can talk, everybody understands their, their mother tongue, and that everybody can tell a story or likes to tell a story, that everybody can write. And it's not, it's not as simple as that. There's, there's this, this myriad of other things that have to happen. And so I, I finally understood it recently, very recently. Somebody said, writing is not like telling a story. Writing is like composing a symphony. That's it. That's what writing a novel is. It's like composing a symphony. It is that many parts. It's that difficult to do. It is that many balls in the air. And, and it takes that much effort. And it takes that much expertise, ultimately. That's not saying that every now and then you can't write a novel, just boom, you regurgitate a novel and it comes out of you because it's your life story if you have an interesting life story. That's fine, but try and do two. Or do three, or do four, or do five. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Both, thank you. Uh, wait, one last question here. I got a ringer in here. I got a couple of ringers. Where are we at here? Okay, um, okay, yes, please, sir. I was curious about how you started hearing the voice of this book, sort of almost submission. The voice of the book. Yeah, did it come to you early on, or did you kind of write your way into that point of view? Um, I think I, I, I think I wrote 
my way to that point of view, I think that um, this book was actually a struggle in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, I think I wrote four drafts before I tore it all out throughout the ending and rewrote uh, to a completely different new ending. And uh, that affected everything. Um, the voice, what happened as the, the book was going on was that the, that the theme began to seize me. That I began to realize I was writing about mortality at a, at a, very, at, at a much more uh, comprehensive level than I thought I had before. And I was writing about parenting. So as the book was progressing, all of a sudden I started noticing that every other chapter or so would become a point of view chapter of somebody else. Somebody you only meet for one chapter. It continually happens in this book. You'll get a chapter from a doctor's point of view. You'll get a chapter from a, a Montooth Dix's point of view. It's usually connected to Joe, but it's not necessarily Joe's chapter. Joe is somebody else. So it became a series of vignettes of people who are in this, this very dangerous world. That's when I think the book began to get omniscient. Was be, I began to kind of pull back out and say, look at all of these, these strange creatures um, living in this extremely violent world in which they do terrible things and yet they go home and they love their children. That was, that was one of the things that kept flowing out of the book. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's why it became a little more omniscient than most of my other stuff, if that helps. Yes. Okay, there was one final over here. Yes, sir. I was going to ask you about your process. Yes, process. Right in the same room every day, right from home, how many hours a day, Oh, uh, much more structured than I ever was. Um, I have two little girls, and so I had to get really serious about how I manage my time. Um, and it's made me actually produce more than when I could just do it whenever I felt like it. When uh, And then I used to write, like, very in the morning or at night, or both. Now I just write in the morning. Um... And uh, well, I have an office, and I go there every day with my insane dog um, because the insane dog can't stay at the house. So she comes with me, and we go to the office. And I work from like 7.30 or so to about 11.30 on writing. That's my magic hours. And then after that, everything that comes out is crap. And then I have to deal with other stuff anyway. That's when you get into the emails and the everything. But I, I feel like, you know, the, the earliest you can get to your desk and the least amount of distractions the way 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 better it is for you i can hit an hour between 7:30 and 8:30 i've noticed that actually between 7:30 and 8:30 i can write more in that hour than i will write the rest of the week in any other hour if i don't get that hour if that makes sense if i came in at 8:30 if i come in at 9 then I'll, my work will be so much slower or something the faucet's just wide open around 7:30 or 8 in the morning um Oh, God, no. No, five? No, that's crazy talk. Um, my uh, youngest daughter usually wakes me about 6 to 6.30. And then uh, I don't need an alarm. And uh, once she wakes me up, then I then I kind of get up and I begin to kind of shuffle into my day and into the shower, out, out grabbing coffee and at the desk by about 7.30. What's your dog's name? Um, Rosie. She, uh, we may be, you know, if, you, if you're in look, looking for a dog. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh... <laughs> All right, well, thank you all very much. This is great. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.